Hey, thank you to Helix for sponsoring this podcast. Adam has had his Helix mattress for almost a year now, and he's loving it. It's it's actually hard to get him up. In fact, he won't stop talking about it. You'll understand what we mean when he goes into detail. Thank you for the detail, Adam, later on the episode. But for now, we want to tell our listeners about a special deal going on. Our Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and... As if that's not enough, two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet, and I'll bet it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Coming to you live from our houses in Los Angeles, California, it's Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, your comedy field guide to life. Tonight, why? Why does nobody listen to Paula Poundstone? Is she just wrong about everything? It's possible. But maybe, just maybe, she's just not great at convincing people she's right. Maybe she needs help closing the deal, moving the chains, winning the argument. Which is why we've got former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal on hand to instruct us on the gentle art of persuasion. And from persuasion to seduction, our book club is back with the first chapters of Eat, Pray, Love. And speaking of love, why doesn't the Czech Republic love us anymore? We've fallen off their podcast charts. Our own Bonnie Burns and Tony Hall are here to offer their report on the land of the Czechs that will definitely either help us win them back or alienate them forever. <laughs> I'm Adam Felber, this show's Solicitor General, perennially poring over podcast precedent, trying to assemble an ironclad, irrefutable case upon the twin pillars of logic and reason. And now, please welcome that simple country lawyer whose off-kilter homespun wisdom never fails to throw a monkey wrench in the wheels of conversational justice. It's Paula Poundstone. Yay, yes. She's a country lawyer. She's a country lawyer. <laughs> wow, Bonnie, that's a that's a first, a theme song for a quip. That quip yeah, now has a theme song. Really? Yeah. I, I'm very I'm very touched. Very Welcome, t- Paula. Oh, well, hi, Adam. Hi, Tony. Hi, Bonnie oh. Burns. Hi. And thanks to tonight's house band, Michael Kelly on the fiddle. Sounds wow. Yeah, Michael Kelly. Michael, thank you. What's new, Paula Poundstone? Tell us what's new. Well, what's on the hot sheet? you know sheet? what? What? I made my first worm castings sale since I became a worm farmer. It's very exciting. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, I advertised it on the show of, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And uh, I told uh, any, anybody who wanted to purchase my worm waste uh, to contact me. And someone did. And they said they'd take the whole batch. Wow. Uh, so it was, a, it was about maybe two gallons, uh, maybe. I mean, I just sort of looked up what other people charge and tried to be commensurate with that. And then, of course, you had to pay the shipping. So for about two gallons, it was $35. And there was, I think I described to you the harvesting of the worm castings, which was probably maybe six hours uh, all together. And then, of course, it was um, at least four months, I think, of feeding the worms, you know, uh, and uh, caring for them. 
And then Wendell spent probably a couple hours packaging it up. And then when we went to, I had separated out all the worm waste and had separated it from the worms, but it had sat in a bin for a little while. And when we opened the bin, there were tons of worms in there. So what I think happened was the, the little cocoons had opened and babies, you know, came out. And then also some of them that snuck by before had grown bigger. So that was another couple hours. So the way I figure it, I think it took altogether about 70 hours okay. of work. And uh, maybe 73 if you, uh, if you include today. And uh, for $35, so I don't know, do the math. What is that? F- about, about 50 cents about 50 an hour? About 50 cents an hour, yeah. 50 cents an hour, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I did allow myself to drink water during the harvest. Okay. Uh, and I was, I was allowed to go inside and use the bathroom. So there were perks. It's not like I feel like you should be charging more, Paula. This doesn't sound like a very good business for you at all. This is just the beginning. You know, this is the bumpy road of beginning a business. It's going to smooth out, you know. I'll be faster at harvesting. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be. You might get it to a dollar an hour at some point. Maybe. But, Um, you know, maybe you could charge more. I mean, because they're buying celebrity worm shit. And I feel like that's worth more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's going to mean a lot to people. I the think fact so. that it's celebrity worm waste. Yeah, that's going to turn the tide right there. You might even want to go reserve celebritywormshit.com because maybe yeah. there's some other celebrities that might want to, you know, subcontract through you. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Listen, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani. For instance, he quite might, possibly. You know, he's he's looking for extra money now. He might want to sell some worm waste. He, he really um, might. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of celebrities, when they can't make movies or television shows because of COVID, a lot of people are going to turn to these alternative ways of making money. And that you're right. You're absolutely right. I yeah. could. Uh, All right. So go grab know. that. Be the absolute avatar of celebrity worm waste. Yeah. You want to get some um, worm waste that came from George Clooney's worms? Right over here. <laughs> right over here. You know, speaking of waste, um, it's time for our book club. Oh, I, it's not waste at all. I'm so excited about that. I'm so excited about the, hey, the, the book club getting back together. I have a theme song. I have a oh, theme boy. song really? to try out. Yeah, I do. Okay, here we go. Let's have it. Do you like reading? Yeah, yeah. We got a book club. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I do. Yeah, yeah. We got a book club. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Turn those pages. <laughs> oh, boy. I want to take this opportunity. Unexpected ending to the... Yeah, to the like theme song. Of a Boy, that is phrase. just great. You know, you might want to think of doing like a a medley, you know, or putting together uh, or, or releasing like an album hits. of your theme songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are <laughs> these Captain are Crunch's theme songs. Hits and misses. Spins and hits and misses. <laughs> I, I gotta say though, I, not one miss. Honestly, there's not one <laughs> miss uh, among this. You know, I would say this well, rivals. This is right up there with it's the story of a man named Brady. Is it? <laughs> is it, Paula? I think it is. I just want to say that this is a 
This right here, Bonnie, Bonnie's theme song, uh, it's a testament to the loyalty of our listeners because week after week they come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to express my gratitude. <laughs> Speaking of gratitude, let's move on to the book club itself. Now, on the table yeah. uh, is the book Eat, Pray, Love. Um, Tony Anita Hull has already read it two or three times, I think, and we have started to read it. We read chapters one through five, and hopefully our listeners did as well, as well as the introduction. And um, Paula, let's start with you. It's it's not called a Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone book club for nothing. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It is... Uh it is to literature what I used to refer to a certain genre of women's music, which is whiny women's music. It, it's so far, it, it's uh, <laughs> out of the gate with a splash. Within a few pages, she's crying on the bathroom floor. I, I mean, what could be more inspirational than hearing a story about a woman who's crying on the bathroom floor uh, because she doesn't, she doesn't want to be married anymore. So she's crying on the bathroom floor. Um, yeah, she's yeah. creating a puddle, as she put it, out of tears and snot. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's to show like the raw, like I don't care how I look. Um, I'm telling it like it is, kind of. Uh, uh, yeah. At one point, she doesn't say. Well, she begins to pray. I think for the first time in her life, maybe, or for the yeah, first yeah. time in a long time. And, you know, her prayers are uh, not really too... There, uh, uh, there's my, my dog, Mo, hated this book. Uh, right, because I've but been this listening is not Mo's podcast. And so, <laughs> no, and so Mo has been listening to it, and she just, she's like... She, Mo specifically said that if she was in that house with the woman crying on the bathroom floor... She would have her snout in that woman's face in a matter of seconds, and she would have dropped a tennis ball in her head uh, because that's how Mo handles any kind of emotion. Um, <laughs> all right, so at one point, she, uh, I don't know, she's praying. I don't know. She's saying, what do I do? What should I do? And then, clear as a bell, she hears herself say, go to bed, Liz. And yeah, yeah, and so I assume that she's saying that God is speaking through her, and she thought that it was brilliant because it was the very thing she needed to do right at that moment. Go to bed, Liz. Wow. That that that's right. I, I, I should I I should clarify for everybody. What happens in those first five chapters is she talks about how she went on this spiritual vision quest, and it starts in Italy, and she's. Almost going to, but hasn't yet um, slept with this Italian guy who's teaching her Italian while she teaches him English. And then she flashes back to the end of her marriage, which was uh, messy, to say the least. And, um, yeah, then she's sobbing on the bathroom floor, and she has what, what um, theologians and, and philosophers refer to as a, an experience of the divine. She touches the face of God, and it turns out it's her face. Um, yeah. And, and and that's really where those five chapters take us. Well, she touches her face to the tile on the floor, on the bathroom floor, the linoleum, perhaps. Right. And she mistakes that for uh, touching the face of God. One one or the other. Um, so yeah. Anything else, Paula? Or is is that? Kind well, of I just what wonder you're, you're if she noticed away? that God had a lot of grout in between his tiles. Um, <laughs> no, I yeah, it just. I, I forget at which point. I might have gone a chapter or two beyond because they are short chapters. 
there's one point where she's talking. She's a writer for a living, and she's given some sort of assignment where she goes to Indonesia, I believe. And somewhere along the way, you know, a lot of, you know, spiritual teaching, whatever, uh, she finds herself saying to herself, what do I want to do? And again, she believes this is a big breakthrough that somehow she had never done that before, said to herself, what do I want to do? And the thing is, you know, this is not a woman who's supporting a family by, you know, being a migrant worker, or she's not, you know, royalty that's been forced into a certain life. Uh, You know, this whole what do I want to do thing. The truth is, she has already at this point in her life, whether she accepts it or not, done all sorts of things that she wanted to do. She, she may have just changed yeah. her mind about what they were. What do I want to do? This is a big breakthrough. What do I want to do? And when she asked that question of herself, I realized that what I wanted to do was stop listening to this book. Okay. <laughs> and yet you're just at the very beginning. Uh, yeah. let's, let's go around the horn a little bit because I want to get other insights. So let's first turn to the um, northern parts of Southern California, up in the Simi Valley, where lies Bonnie Burns. Bonnie, how did you feel about the first five chapters of Eat, Pray, Love? You know, first of all, this book really made me want to... And I love Tony Anita Hall. Crinkle, okay. It it made me want to crinkle. I love Tony Anita Hall. I thought this book was really a piece of shit. I could not stand (laughs) this book. And here's the thing. As soon as she said, I set out to find the truth, I thought, guarantee she doesn't have kids. Because if she did, she wouldn't have time to be that self-involved. Well, her her whole crisis, the whole reason that she went to find the truth was that she realized she didn't want to have kids. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, you have kids and suddenly things are not about you and you don't do all those things because there's somebody else in your life that more important. So your advice, Bonnie, is if if somebody doesn't (laughs) want to have kids, the way to fix that is to have kids. Okay, so I, I listened to this on tape and I thought, okay, you know, how bad could it be? So while I was listening, I wrote down, like, you know, Letterman's top ten list. I did, like, five things that listening to this book made me want to say. So here was one. Oh, my God. Here was number two. My ears hurt. Number three was, I don't give a shit about Giovanni. Number four was, I knew she didn't have kids. And number five was, I want to stick my finger down my throat. Wow. I'm never going to make it through this book. I don't care about her. I don't care about her story. Wow. I'm not going to be able to get through this. You're going to have to. It's the book club. Um, Wow, those are strong opinions. I thought I had a somewhat negative reaction. Yeah. We'll get to mine in a minute, but... um, Tony, Anita Hull, you do not have to offer a counter-argument. Nobody's going to make you do that. But uh, I do want to hear your opinion of the first five chapters of Eat, Pray, Love. I have so many thoughts about this whole conversation, but I'll just stick to the book. Um, So I actually... (laughs) (laughs) This is so fraught. (laughs) 
I feel like I'm I'm the token ref in a tag team wrestling match and uh, go 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 ahead, Tony. Wow, wow, the the thinly yeah. veiled rage. Um, so I, I I read this book a couple of times when I was in my twenties. Yeah. And so now reading it through the lens of being much older. Yeah. I kind of agree with Paula on this. Wow. Yeah. It's a little bit white woman privilegey, which I never. I yeah. A little bit. A little, a lot. <laughs> and also knowing that she got well paid to write this book, and that's how she paid for her travels too. Um, oh, anyway. I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. Which I didn't know when I left on my own journey that was sadly inspired by this book. Um, so, yeah, those are my thoughts. Wow, <laughs> that was unexpected. I got to tell you, I had a very similar reaction to the three of you. I also noticed that she finds so many excuses not to really describe the thoughts or feelings of any other human being in the world. There's always a reason why it has to be uh, describing her feelings. You know, out of respect for um, the relationship she and her husband had, I'm not going to tell you about him or his problems with me, <laughs> what he was thinking. Out of respect for Giovanni, I, I really am not going to describe him except in terms of whether he's interested in me or not. Out of respect for God, I'm going to let you know that I, I met God, and God sounds a lot like me. Like, even fucking God doesn't get much ink in this book, <laughs> except as somebody with her own voice. Yeah. It's, isn't it amazing how God is able to speak through her to her? Go to bed, Liz. I love the way Honestly, you say that, Paula. Go to bed, Liz. It might not have even been God or her saying it. It might have been a neighbor through the bathroom window. Go to bed, Liz. <laughs> Well, I, you know, Paula, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, you know, we got a lot of prey in the first five chapters. I am ready for eat and 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 fuck I mean, because there's there's no okay. the prayer. Okay. What? There's Tony? no what? No, you, you have spoilers what? here. Do you know that she also? Do you know the movie Coyote Ugly? Side note. Yes. No. No. So she wrote the article that that movie is based on. Isn't that an interesting oh. fun fact? <laughs> she was dancing and on bars in Coyote Ugly, and it led to the movie. Yes. Is that true? It is yep. true. Huh. Yeah, Boy. it's 100%. So, so did God say to her through her own voice, <laughs> get off the bar, Liz. <laughs> Pull your dress down, Liz. Um, you know what? I'm, I, I am willing to bet that at some point she's going to say, uh, uh, that life is like an onion. Really? You have to pe yeah. keep peeling back the layers or you never know what you get? No, you peel back the layers and then you cry. I, I'm oh telling boy. you, that is the, the depth All right, of... let's log this, let's log this then, because this is important. Um, where's my gavel? Here it is. Um, uh, Paula Poundstone has offered an official book club prediction that uh, Elizabeth Gilbert is going to be comparing... Uh, life to an onion before the end of Eat, Pray, Love. Yes. Yeah. Ocean absolutely. Carry. And I'll All take right. you know I'll take bets on that. Uh, which reminds me, by the way, you uh, I'm waiting for my bag of worms. Yeah, you know, you, 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 you'll get, I will I will get you the bag of worms that you won in the Who Will Buy thing. And once I get yeah, you that bag of you. worms, you'll be well on your way to spending another hundred hours earning thirty five bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. 
Um, but you know what? I have to say, look, moving forward, I, I might be in for a surprise because just the kind of character that she presented herself as, and as Tony put it, it's a very privileged white woman-y. I think she's definitely capable of eating and praying. I'm, I'm, I'm open to the idea that I could develop a concern for her <laughs> as the book goes on. Um, with this in mind, though, do we want to uh, take a motion to, to read 10 rather than five chapters next week just to get this over with? <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Let's, let's okay, motion 10 carries. Chapters. 10 chapters next week. 5 to 15 10 for chapters. you listeners out there. 6 to 15, yeah. yeah. But you know what? I have very, very, very good news, which is that I have a word, and, oh, and this, word, oh, great. <laughs> this word could very easily come up in the book. And so, okay. you know, good that I'm expanding your vocabulary now so you'll okay. understand Liz. Um, so my word is uh, sucker. It's a noun that means help given to someone who is suffering or in difficulty. So if yes. anybody gave a shit about Liz, they might offer her sucker. Um, uh, here, I'll use it in a sentence. Bystanders gave sucker to the accident victims. Uh, it, it might be clearer if I use it in a family setting. Mother, I hope you like the salmon. I pan-seared it. If you don't like the capers, just take them off. Did you and Scott enjoy another long summer day today? Mom, school started this week. <coughs> Honey, are you okay? <coughs> she needs sucker, Dad. We'll not have that kind of language while your mother is joking to death. Dad, sucker means help given to someone who is suffering or in difficulty. Well, I'm perfectly capable of helping your mother without using the word sucker. She choked on her floss one night and I just pulled it out of her throat. No one even mentioned the word sucker. Remember that, honey? <laughs> My word recall. Yeah. I'm hoping that it makes sucker stay in our heads because it's such a great word. I really want to be able to remember it because I, I know I'm going to need sucker. So let's put it right into the vocabulary song. Uh, here we go. This week's word is sucker. It's a noun that means help given to someone who's suffering or in difficulty. A fine assist from Jimmy McNulty. Last week's word was pugnacious. It's an adjective that means eager to argue, quarrel, or fight. I'll kick your ass for flying a kite. The week before <laughs> that, the word was intrepid. It's an adjective that means not afraid of danger or difficulty. Brave or bold, I'm walking into this cave even though there are wolverines in here, I'm told. Going back before that, the word was dollar. It's a noun that means a state of great sorrow or distress. Lucy and Ethel stopped being friends in the episode when they bought the same dress. And not long ago, the word was encomium. It's a noun that means a speech or piece of writing praising someone or something. In conclusion, I would like to reiterate, no one in the entire world has ever made such a fine vegan buffalo wing. <laughs> Let's never forget Gallimaufry, which I pronounced wrong until nobody, James Hyder, 
corrected me. It's a noun that means confused jumbler medley of things. Hodgepodge, who's podge, hodgepodge. Adam doesn't think my song is replicable, replicable, replicable. But I do, I do, I do, I do. Oh, yeah. Wow, Paula. I I felt like that song was a a 10 out of 10. Great. I feel like your Glock playing might have lost a step there. Uh, I had a little, yeah. I did that thing where I landed on two notes at the same time, and that's a setback for any Glock player. That's rough. Rough when that happens. But I I took a vacation at one point, and so I I had been practicing like 10 hours a day. And then I took that vacation to Massachusetts and just thrown everything off a little bit. That'll happen. That'll happen. Well, Um, coming up. Yes? Well, I think I might have pronounced. I said dollar. I believe it's doler. Uh, It's a noun that means a state of great sorrow or distress. I believe it's doler. So I just. Well, I feel dolorous over that mispronunciation. Yeah, I don't want people pronouncing the word wrong and being laughed out of their (laughs) conversation as a result. Yeah, uh, well, nobody's. If you want another mnemonic to remember, Dolor, it's it's the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom, Dolor, that tomorrow there'll be sun. Oh. That's how you remember it. Yeah, that's very effective. Coming up, Thomas Carlyle said, "Not brute force, but persuasion and faith are the kings of this world." Sadly, he said this while trying to talk a pickle jar into opening. We'll explore the real uses of persuasion next on <laughs> Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Hey, Paula, it's been almost a year now since I got my Helix mattress. And as you remember, there was some drama surrounding Helix mattresses. Because oh, when oh Helix gosh. first sponsored us, Bonnie took the mattress and yeah. she's been loving it. But finally, I got my chance to get a Helix mattress and I sleep so well. I mean, the family bed is where we all gather. We watch movies in, in our room occasionally and everybody just piles on it and it it's comfy. And yet when one person hops on, the other half of the mattress doesn't fly up. I'm a fan. Well, you know, Adam, everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side. Models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It is the perfect combination of comfort and support. I agree with that last bit. I don't get all the technical stuff about the mattress, but it is soft and supportive. Helix offers 20 unique mattresses, the award-winning Lux, which I got, and ultra-premium Elite Collections, the Helix Plus, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and the Helix Kids mattress designed for growing bodies and endorsed by child sleep experts, and my daughter now wants one. So, how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? You go to their website, take the Helix Sleep Quiz, and you find your perfect 
perfect mattress match in under two minutes. You know, when you said you can't follow all the technical stuff, it's really not that technical. You know, uh, no matter what way you sleep, they have a mattress that will support and comfort you. How hard is that? Uh, You know, when you say it that way, it seems a lot simpler. I take it back. That's my boner. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door, free of charge. And Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Well, I like that there's a warranty, but they can pry that mattress from my cold, dead hands. I took the sleep quiz. I was matched with the Helix Midnight Lux. I got the Lux. And I love it. It is such an upgrade from my old mattress. You know, I think Bonnie got the Midnight Lux. She did. Too. Yeah. You're not here. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to take Adam's word for it? Well, you got Bonnie's word. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Your Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. That's a lot, and it's already not that expensive a mattress. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet. It's fantastic. It won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, not right now. And if you're going to get it anyway, use our code. Hey, Paula, you know, every once in a while we get a new advertiser that I get super excited about. And I have to say, just because of the circumstances of my life right now, I'm really excited about our new advertiser, Quince of Quince.com, the clothing provider. Not to be mistaken for Quince from Midsummer Night's Dream. And let me just say this, and maybe it's not important to an advertisement, but when I was in the fourth grade, our class put on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. And I played I played Peter Quince. There. There's the connection. One of the mechanicals. That's a great connection. Also, yes, has nothing to do with this, which is that um, Quince is an online clothing store. And as you know, Paula, I've, uh, I've lost a little weight lately. Oh, right. 75 pounds. Yeah. So I literally have no clothes that are in my size until I just ordered some stuff at Quince. And I figured, like, here's a chance for me to create a new look for myself. A whole new image. And how's it going? Not bad. I mean, the clothes are fantastic. I know that you ordered some too. What I got is I got the Comfort Stretch Traveler five pocket pants. And I got the, um, oh, it's so, and I got the 100% European linen shirt and it looks breezy and it fits beautifully. These are like premium pieces of clothing that are selling for like, you know, $30 a piece or starting at $30 at quince.com. It's awesome. I look good. I ordered the brushed lounge jogger and you know i put them on when i came back from new york i pulled them on and i i swear to you okay this is not scientific because i was tired already right but they were so soft (laughs) and and so comfortable that honestly like right as i got them up to my waist i i I think my eyes closed they're so it's a softness it's a kind of softness that I don't think I've ever experienced in a garment, honestly. You know, my uh, drawstring European linen trousers are a little bit like that, too. Like, so comfortable that I just want to hang out with myself. 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're European. Keep that in mind. Uh, oh, European. they are so European. And you can get those kind of, you can get washable silk tops. You can get uh, 14 karat gold jewelry and like all these accessories. Quinn sells a lineup of timeless pieces that keep their customers looking effortlessly chic year after year. I'm not certain that I look chic, but certainly if I did, it's not going to take a lot of effort. I now look chic and I feel pretty great. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabric. It's all good as far as I can see. Is it my imagination or do they cut out the middleman? They cut out the middleman, Paula Poundstone. I love it when they cut out the middleman. That's the thing, they cut out the middleman. <laughs> That's fantastic. So be like me and Paula. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash nobody for free shipping on your order and a 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash nobody to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash nobody. Nobody. And honestly, I look fantastic. Paula, you won't be able to keep your hands off me. Oh, I can't wait. And don't <laughs> think that if you had to return something, don't think you're sending it to a middleman because they cut out the middleman. They man. cut out the middleman. That's quince.com slash nobody. And if you're going to do it anyway. Use our code. On this day in unremarkable history, Jonas Salk said, Of course they'll take it. No one wants to get polio. People aren't stupid, you know. Thank you, house band Michael Kelly. Hey, Paula Poundstone. Hey! You know what's going on these days I've noticed and I know you've noticed too? Um... This is kind of a contentious time we're living in right now. It's fractious. I was just on vacation, and and some of my family are anti-vaxxers. No. Yeah? Did you talk to them about it? You know what? I don't know what to say. Like, it all seems so obvious, uh, and I'm well, not— what did you say? Did you say anything? I did, and I don't think I made any headway at all. You know— the fact that I don't argue that well doesn't mean that I'm wrong. That's what's frustrating. That's exactly right. Uh, you, you don't have to be right to win an argument. And if you're right, you don't always win. But Paula, this is going to blow your mind. But by amazing happenstance, we have an expert on that subject right here, right now on our podcast. No. Yeah, it's true. Neil Katyal is the former acting solicitor general of the United States, partner at Hogan Lavelle's, and the Paul and Patricia Saunders professor of national security law at Georgetown University Law Center. That's my old job. American lawyer named him the 2017 litigator of the year, and he has argued more Supreme Court cases than any other minority attorney in U.S. history. Please welcome Neil Katyal, everybody. <laughs> wow, that's quite a resume, Neil. Honestly. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm a huge fan of you guys, and thank you for having me. Oh, well, that's very sweet of you. Do you make your students, like, raise their hands and say, Paul and Patricia Saunders, professor of national security law at Georgetown University Law Center, 
absolutely. To make them use the whole title. Oh, oh that's absolutely. so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And my middle name, too. It's, it's good to command that kind of respect. <laughs> well, I am a big admirer. I've listened to any of your Supreme Court arguments. I've listened to your whole courtside mini podcast series. I see you on MSNBC, and uh, I think you've been on the news hour before. I am. Uh, I bow down at your feet. Um, and I'm hoping that you can help me with my deficit in the area of arguing. Are there different types of arguments, like like a Supreme Court argument or the argument I have with Adam, that uh, Sound of Music is an all-time great movie, or just like a get-the-fucking-vaccine argument, um, or, or a why-do-I-have-to-do-all-the-work argument? Are they different? Yeah, I think... Arguments are totally different. So first of all, obviously, the audience matters. So like, you know, you, you know, talking to your listeners is different than you talking to your family and so on. So that's one big thing. But the other big thing is the topic really matters. And so, you know, you talk about the sound of music versus, you know, the vaccine. I, I think that there are certain things you can get away with in a personal argument that you can't get away with in a legal argument. So I imagine it, it's a bit, Paula, like having your own HBO special. Like the audience is there for you. They already like you. You can rib them a bit. You can make some personal jokes. But if you try that as the fourth stand-up comic in the night in a dive bar, you might not find your target audience quite as receptive. Oh, that is a really great example. For the example. record, I prefer the vaccine to the sound of music. Oh, geez. I think the most important thing is to actually have empathy for the other position and for whoever the decision maker is. If you're, you know, sometimes you're just arguing it to your partner or whatever. And so she or he's the decision maker. But sometimes you have a third party as the decision maker, a judge, you know, a board, you know, uh, you know, an audience, whatever. So you got to understand really where they're coming from. And the only way to understand where they're coming from is to take your own ego out a bit and to be a true listener. Are you talking about the judge, the decision maker, or your opponent in the argument? Actually, both. So, you know, to the extent you have both of those other players, you've got a separate decision maker plus a opponent of some sort. I think you really got to get into both of their heads. Um, and, you know, if it's just a conversation among the two of you about whether The Sound of Music is as bad of a mu movie as one of you thinks it is, then you just really have to try and get into the other person's head and understand where they're coming from. And only then, I think, can you actually make a decent argument. Why do you say in your TED Talk um, that confidence is the enemy of persuasion? Well... You know, I think the pre there's a lot of premium that people place on sounding confident in arguments, and I think it's a really pernicious myth. It's it's actually, Paula, like kind of the terrors of a clown mentality that you've described in comedy. Um, you're led to believe that your fuel is entirely internal, and if you feel a certain way and confident in the case of an argument or unhappy in the case of comedy, then you can achieve peak performance. You know, that's the... I think the myth and the real success comes when you look outside of yourself and you make a connection with other people. And whether that's, you know, your partner you're arguing to or a panel of judges, I don't think it really matters. Um, I think the idea is to really just sit there and say, I need to get into this other person's head, understand what is motivating her or him, and then answer it. And so that's why, like I've seen so many times, both in life and in court, People stand up and make arguments 
but they're always caricatures of the other side's position. They're not the right arguments. They're not the ones that are the most persuasive to third parties or what's motivating the other side. It's kind of wow. A it sounds person. like you've watched some cable news as opposed as well, as well <laughs> exactly, <being> on it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you work, if you just watch Tucker on any given night, he's actually not making you know he's not answering a real argument on the other side he's are you making suggesting that tucker argument. carlson is arguing in bad faith and mischaracterizing <laughs> his opposition i, I actually <laughs> don't want to characterize his motivations because I, I don't know the guy but but certainly it's not an effective way to persuade anyone all he's doing is preaching to the converted yeah he's not really persuading right so Neil, what do you think are the keys to a successful argument? You know, I think the keys to a successful argument, I think, are threefold. Number one, what we've been talking about already, which is truly listening to the other side. Um, but the second is hard work. Um, and, you know, I found that a successful argument resembles Paula's description about happiness. So it's not built in some grand emotional moment like you bought a Ferrari or, or turned on the waterworks or something. It's slow, methodical. It's like getting an exercise. You know, for me, it's learning the arguments in the case and the case law back to front. Um, that's what gets me where I'm going. So that's, you know, there's no substitute for the hard work of this. And then the third piece of this, and, and maybe the most interesting to you all, is I, I found spontaneity is really important. I mean, winning an argument, no matter how far ahead you plan, always involves, in my view, a bit of improvisation. And it's kind of like when you're doing crowd work at a show, you notice how people are reacting and you match their energy. Um, and, you know, that's why, Paul, it seems like about a third of your shows seem to me to be really, truly improv um, in reactions to what's going on. And I've tried to do something similar in my life. So to the point where I'm, I've taken this so seriously, I first started taking classes with Freestyle Love Supreme in New York doing improvisational rap. And, wow. then, um, and then I realized how... <laughs> quite how bad my voice and singing and rhythm was. Um, so I moved away from those classes um, and I started working with Liz Allen, who's a phenomenal improv coach uh, in Chicago from Second City and, you know, doing classes wow. with her to really try and get at this thing. Um, and, you know, I know it's not surprising to both of you, but, but for, for me, the thing I really learned about improv is I thought, oh, I had to like always have the witty, funny, spontaneous, spontaneous line. But actually, what what she's taught me, and she's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, is improv's really actually about that first thing. It's about listening to other people. Yeah. And if you're listening to the other people in your group, um, then the lines come and they write themselves. And that's also true about argument. If I'm listening really closely to what the judge is saying or what my opponent is saying, the lines write themselves. And they're not the lines I walked in with. They're the lines that react to this dynamic environment of an actual argument. You know, wow. I taught a lot of uh, improv classes uh, back in the day. And uh, one of the other maxims from one of the schools I taught at was make your partner look good. Would you say that's somewhat related to uh, the empathy thing you were talking about? A hundred percent. Like if you can keep your partner comfortable, you can keep moving forward. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, and, and, and that even as if that person's your opponent, if you're sitting there demonizing them and making them look like, like a joke, it actually, you know, blows back on you. So, you know, when you're at least in court, you're an officer of the court. Your job is to help the court try and find truth. 
And you don't do that by like going and, you know, saying, you know, snide stuff about the other side. It's literally taking the best argument that they come up with and saying why it's wrong. And that's why like sometimes the best arguments start with that. So you stand up and you say, the best argument my friend on the other side has is this. Here's why it's wrong. And you don't like say like some BS version of what the other side's best argument is. It's truly the best argument on the other side. And then you answer it. Yeah, you know, uh, Hamilton Berger used to, I think, cross that line because he was always accusing Perry Mason of some sort of misdeed. Uh, and Hamilton Berger never won. So that's got to be proof that this is absolutely the way to go. I'm not convinced that's proof. No, it is. It is proof. How do you, uh, Neil, when you were saying get, so you would say you, uh, the, the way you put it is you get into the head of your, um, y- you know, your adversary in the argument. Uh, and also in, uh, you say you get into the head of the decision maker. And how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So I think there's no substitute for actually going and listening to them all the time. So like for me, I've probably listened to more than 450 Supreme Court arguments. So I'm listening to the justices um, and the words they use. And in court, I'm watching their demeanor. I'm watching where they put their fingers on their face, where they put their hands. I'm watching everything and trying to learn and understand, read their body language, understand which words they like to use and what they mean. And I'll, you know, I'll even sometimes use, you know, computer programs to try and get at it and try and figure out, you know, what words the justices find particularly persuasive or individual justices even. So you're trying to, at every turn, uh, take the audience seriously and, um, and react. And so, that's one thing. But, you know, I do want to say, you know, it's it's important to, you know, be a hype man to make the other side look good, you know, to not, as we were talking about, not to demonize them. But that does have limits, you know, like, as both of you know, I'm on TV most nights probably saying something very derogatory about Donald Trump, um, you know, and <laughs> true, but derogatory. And, and, you know, like, I think there's also a role for truth in advocacy. And so, you know, it has its limits, you know, yes, you should really try and deal with the best argument on the other side. But when you're confronted with monstrous, uh, anti-constitutional evil, authoritarian evil, I think you also have to call it that. I don't think that you can just, you know, walk away from that and say, oh, you know, there are, as as he said, you know, fine people on both sides. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's not an argument for relativism. It's an argument. What I'm saying is that, you know, persuasion, if you're trying to persuade, it does involve taking the best argument on the other side and answering it, of course. But sometimes the best argument on the other side is laughable, as, you know, Trump's defense of January 6th and his conduct is profoundly pathetic. Um, and, you know, it should be revealed as such, which is authoritarian and potentially criminal. Yeah. Oh. And sadly, lots and lots more shoes to drop. I think. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, there's, a, a, there's a centipede aspect um, to the Donald Trump game. There is a Imelda Marco-sized closet full of shoes in the heavens right now. <laughs> just waiting to yeah. drop. 
<laughs> yeah. And I think what people don't realize is that Donald Trump used the Justice Department and the powers of the presidency to keep that closet door closed and to evoke executive privilege and all these different cockamamie things so that his financial records and all his misdeeds wouldn't see the light of day gambling that he would, you know, have a second term so he can get that stuff buried. Uh, and unfortunately for him, he didn't get that second term. And the evidence is starting to dribble out. It's coming very slowly, unfortunately, but it is at least starting. Yeah. You know, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, and I quote, insults are the arguments by those who are in the wrong. Oh, really, Jean-Jacques? We'll offer a subtle counter-argument to that fat French jerk-off when we come back. of the week is Francisco from Corvallis, Oregon. And we're back with Neil Cotyall. Paula Poundstone, take it away. Neil, um, your TED Talk, remind me the name of it. Um, hmm, I'll have to go back and look, but it's something like how to win an argument in the Supreme Court or anywhere. Listeners, you can just Google uh, Neil Katyal TED Talk. It's really good. Um, uh, but in it, you mention laying a trap for your opponent. Um, can you give us an example of that? Yeah, sure. I can talk about my first Supreme Court case, um, which involved Guantanamo. I was actually representing uh, Osama bin Laden's driver and suing the Bush administration and saying that Guantanamo couldn't be a legal black hole where this guy could be put to death in a fake court and with a fake trial. And uh, what the Bush, what President Bush did is he said in his executive order on Guantanamo that there was no writ of habeas corpus, no right to even go to the federal courts and try and stop this guy's trial or possible execution. And um, I thought that was just absurd. Um, but there is a way in which presidents like Lincoln have suspended the writ of habeas corpus. It's a really delicate thing to do, but it has been done. Um, at the same time, you know, it's something that has to be done overtly, you know, with a presidential order and things like that. And so what I wanted to do was basically trick my opponent into walking into that trap of saying the president had inadvertently suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Um, it was my first Supreme Court argument. It was my opponent's 35th. He was the Solicitor General of the United States and a brilliant, phenomenal lawyer. So I was kind of running guerrilla warfare in the courtroom. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I, I figured out how to do that. I rehearsed it 15 times before 15 different practice audiences to try and get it to happen. And lo and behold, it did happen. And the justices got incredibly angry at the position that my opponent was taking. How um, did you do that? Did you get did you get your opponent to to admit that that Bush had not intentionally suspended the writ of habeas corpus? I had a, a series of lines that I used to try and elicit certain questions from the justices. The thing about a Supreme Court argument, which you know, you're not all your listeners probably know, is it's only thirty minutes per side, and they're Isn't that constantly amazing? interrupt, and they're constantly interrupting you. So, like 
I get about 50 to 55 questions in a 30 minute argument. So that means I don't get to like have some chance to give a speech or even a paragraph answer like I'm giving to you all. I've got the chance to give a line, maybe two lines. So I've got to figure out in a circumstance like this, what are my answers that's going to lead the justices down a certain path of questioning that's going to be really advantageous to me? And then when we want to get into the, you know, almost the, the, the most sophisticated version of it, it's how do I answer a question that'll trap my opponent? Wow. That's so little time. Do you avoid talking to the justices that have more syllables in their names or for <laughs> or ones that might be hyphenated because you're just tight for time? There are certain justices that take a long time to ask a question. And so you tend not to look at them in the courtroom as much because if you look at them and make eye contact, then they may, may ask you a question and eat up a lot of your time. So yes, those kinds of things really do matter. Just like being a waitress, you learn to make your way through the restaurant floor without really making eye contact with anybody because they're going to ask for more stuff. Or it's like being a Hollywood person at a party now because if you make eye contact, then someone's going to ask you to do their podcast. <laughs> it is 100%. I think the the, the waiter analogy is, is a really good one because, um, you know, you are – the best advocates are people who go into the court and say, it's not about them. It's about really trying to serve the customer, uh, the audience, that they're mm -hmm. here as justices. And you have to recognize that you're just uh, a facilitator of conversation. Often the justices haven't talked about the case with each other until the oral argument. So they're actually making points, not to you. They're making points to their colleagues. And so oh. you have to basically like, facilitate that conversation, like almost like, and I do, I sit there and I, men I, I mentally try and picture I'm at a dinner table with them and I'm just facilitating a conversation rather than being like this narrow advocate at a podium. So you say things like, Justice Stevens, do you have anything that you want to say to Justice Alito? You want to share <laughs> no, your feelings? That's more like a therapist. He's uh, that's okay, different okay. than being at a dinner table because you, do you ever say to them, um, "Could you say that again, but make it an I statement?" See, that's like a therapist. <laughs> that's a therapist, yes. But what I, what I do think you are doing, though, absolutely, to get at both to answer both of your questions, is you are really trying to understand where the votes are and where the kind of ideological fault lines are. And sometimes they're not political. You know, a lot of cases aren't political at the Supreme Court. And you're just trying to understand the differences in perspectives. And sometimes you can use a question by one justice to really facilitate an answer to some underlying unease that some other justices have, even if it hasn't been spoken yet in the courtroom. Got you. That's really um, interesting. Is there any truth to the adage, if you have the facts, pound the facts? If you have the evidence, pound the evidence? If you have neither, pound the table? Does that play anything in... Uh... Yeah, well, I think, you know, as I've heard that adage, it's more if you have the facts, pound the facts, and if you have the law, pound the law. And it's okay. definitely the case that, like, you know, sometimes you only have one, and then you really try and do that. Um, and if you have more of the other, you try and do that. Um, I think under, you know, the final part of that, you know, uh, that 
color that that sentence is like you know if you have neither pound the table well pounding the table at least at the U.S. Supreme Court never a good idea um, you'll 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 be you know laughed out of there at, at best. Do you think you wouldn't be invited back? <laughs> um, they wouldn't like it too much, no. But again, it's you know the, at the court, the it's not about the advocate as much as the positions. But but yeah, you know you want to try and behave with decorum. Is there is there engineering or architecture in the way you build an argument? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think the first thing that I do is try and come up with like what's the right answer to this question. Forget about like who my audience is, but just like. I sit there and I say, okay, here's what they're saying. Here's what we're saying. What's the right answer and why? What is like the, you know, the, the little bit that fundamentally persuades me about a certain position? Then I try and say, what is each of the nine justices thought about this? What have they said before? And the like. And then I try and come up with a synthesis of that, um, which doesn't walk away from my core belief as to why, you know, I'm right on a certain thing, but takes into account their various, you know, proclivities and, you know, nuances that they've got. Um, and then I go and I practice it, um, you know, the argument. I practice what we call moot court. I probably do this more than anyone. Um, and, you know, at least six times full dress rehearsals before an argument, and then sometimes as many as 15. And I'll Do you have friends that them. play the, the justices? Yeah, so I have, um, you know, my team, most of them have clerked on the Supreme Court, so they've worked for a justice already. Do they do you know, good impressions? Them. <laughs> they, no impressions, but what they are they are good at is trying to get a, into the justices' heads and try and mirror how they think. And they're throwing questions at me in that specific vein, um, you know, from the standpoint of a certain justice, uh, you know, or something like that. So after all that, I then go and I listen to those. I record everything, put them on MP3, and then I will run to them outside and listen to every one of my answers to try and say, can I make that better? Can I make it quicker? Can I make the answer something that yeah, invites a question that I really want to get as a follow-up? Those are the kinds of things I do. And then maybe the most important thing of all is the night before the argument, I will go and tell each of my three kids what the case is about. And, you know, they'll ask me some questions and why I think I'm right. And I have to boil it down for them. Now they're older, but, you know, I started when they were three, five, and seven. Oh so imagine gosh, explaining some complicated great. Supreme Court case. The discipline of forcing yourself to explain your case to someone who doesn't know a thing about the law is probably a little bored. Um, and uh, is something that I think really actually helps me the next day in the courtroom. I think that's brilliant. I absolutely love that. So often in, in our deliberations with, with my coworkers on Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, so often everyone else is wrong and I'm right. <laughs> is it poor form of me to bring that up during the argument? <laughs> Um, I'd advise against it, Paula. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's probably not the best way to persuade anyone or to keep your employees. But, um, but you know, you know, if you're going to do it, do it with your sense of humor. So, you know, you can probably get away with stuff I can't um, because you can make it funny and biting at the same time. I don't know, Neil. On the things that I've heard you on, you're very funny. 
Um, I but, agree. But I, I, well, on the other hand, try to, I'm trying to think if in the Supreme Court arguments I've heard you give, if you, uh, if there were, because there are times where someone says something funny. Um, yeah, no, I, it's uh, it's definitely, you know, it's such an intense environment and particularly pre-pandemic because, you know, in pandemic, we've been arguing on, you know, on the, on a speakerphone, which is just kind of ridiculous. Um, but, uh, but pre-pandemic, you go there and, you know, there's definitely a kind of dramatic tension to the whole thing. And so it makes things that don't sound particularly funny become very funny. Um, I tend to avoid, you know, much in the way of uh, humor at the court, just because I'm not sure I'll pull it off right. And, yeah, but um, now you've taken improv. You start breaking, <laughs> yeah. As I say, I'm not sure I'll pull it off right. <laughs> well, when you were um, doing the argument on behalf of uh, Bin Laden's driver, did you get a sense that the members of the court appreciated the nose and glasses that you were wearing? <laughs> or that that, you know, put some shade on your argument? I'd like to see you go in maybe with some props. Yeah, no, uh, no, no props at the court for me, at least, Paula. But, you know, next time you're up there, you know, uh, you can do the props and I'll watch and see how well it goes over with the justices. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll go first. But, I'll go first. But but, you know, there are definitely times, you know, I've already case I had to argue a case right the day after the election um, this year on November 4th. Um, and it was a very controversial case about the rights of LGBT foster parents. You know, I was uh, representing the city of Philadelphia, which was standing up for these folks against, I think, some real discriminatory agencies and the like. Um, you know, so obviously there was an emotional resonance to the case, but I also understood that people were all up until 2, 3 a.m., um, including, I suspected, members of the court. So, you know, I started that argument a little more gently, probably did have a little more humor in that one just because, uh, you know, it was uh, it was just such a tough day for people. Um, yeah. A great day for me. But, uh, you know, in terms of who won, but, uh, you know, a tough day for people. All right. Well, Neil, that was fantastic. And what we're going to do right now, we're going to run all this new information through the old pounce donator. Paula? Being the house band on this podcast is not a glamorous job. It's a lot of late nights and travel. So thank you, house band Michael Kelly, bringing it on the fiddle. You sound great. If I can get a little background music here, I'll tell you what the old pounce donator spit out. Neil Katyal, thank you. You are brilliant. I, I don't think I'll probably be your best student, but I'm going to try to use what you've said. First of all, I listen to my anti-vaxxer. What is their best argument? Fear. I get it. It's a scary time. Suddenly, I realized I don't know the makeup or science of any drug I've ever taken or given to my kids. I know that some people have profited from things that we bought or used that have hurt us. So trusting is not easy, but we do trust. I don't know what makes an airplane stay in the air. I don't know how Space Mountain works, but I've stood in line for hours to ride on it. Have there been enough studies? The Pfizer vaccine has, of course, recently gotten full approval from the FDA, and the others are expected to also be approved. But that aside, billions of people, including me, have taken this vaccine with little or no ill effects. As for vaccines in general, I don't personally know anyone who's had polio, and until very recently, I thought rubella was one of Cinderella's sisters. We need each other. <laughs> We need experts. I'm capable of learning a little bit on some subjects, but infectious disease doctors have spent years and years studying infectious diseases. Thank goodness. 
because all three of my children in separate incidents have had their lives saved by infectious disease doctors. I'm gonna trust them, not some random person on Facebook, not someone whose self-proclaimed qualification is that his cousin taught at MIT who tells me to inject bleach under my skin. Aeronautic engineers have spent lifetimes studying mechanical flight. I can't throw a Frisbee. Trust sucks. We've all been burned at one time or another. Trusting the wrong person, trusting is hard. But without it, we couldn't even get up in the morning. Trust the experts, and not just one. There's always going to be a few that talk about demon seed. Listen to a lot of experts. Look at the data and get vaccinated before it's too late. In conclusion, I would like to say that I believe The Sound of Music is one of the greatest movies ever made. However, that, unlike vaccinations, is a matter of opinion. He is the former acting Solicitor General of the United States and so many other things. Thank you so much, Neil Katyal, ladies and gentlemen. Thank Thank you, you, Neil. Thank you for having me. This is just so fun. I really appreciate it. You are awesome. we, We are absolutely honored. Thank you very, very much. Oh, thank you, too. Coming up, the Czech Republic has soured on this podcast. We'll try to win them back by demonstrating our deep knowledge of their country and culture with Tony Hull and Bonnie Burns' report, or as I like to call it, the last nail in the coffin. That's coming up next. Fun fact, Saudi Arabia is the largest country in the world without a single permanent river. But they have a lot of temps. <laughs> and we're back. Hey, Paula, this is an exciting time for the podcast. But, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's a little sad, too. It's a little dolorous. What 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 makes us so, Adam? Well, what 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 gives me a case of the dolors is that um, it seems as though we were on at one point the comedy podcast charts in the Czech Republic. Oh but yeah, we, we are no longer the charting there. The, what? No. Yeah. No, we were big in the Czech Republic. We were. Well, we were like, what number were we, Tony? Um, we, that's an excellent question. Probably, we were like, let's just say, like, uh, 101. We were like oh, 101 okay. in the Czech Republic. 101 with a bullet. I would step out the door into my neighborhood in the morning and just feel good about myself because nobody listens to Paula Poundstone, the comedy podcast, was 101 in the Czech Republic. Yeah, and you know what? I got to confess, Paula, I always had this thing where over the last year or so, when I would run into a Czech person, you know, uh, you know, at the market or at a social event, sure. you know, I'd always be a little bit sort of like hesitant about saying my full name because I didn't want to brag. You know, oh, I'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, I'm that Adam yeah. Felber, yes, from the 101st yeah. most popular yeah. comedy podcast in, in the Czech Republic. Last thing you want to do is be mobbed by a bunch of Czech Republic people while you're trying to get through the grocery line. Yeah, it's yeah. just, you know what, it's a it's a public or, safety issue more than anything. Yeah. 
Exactly. Or just slice some sliced Gouda and put it on a cracker at a party. I don't need all these Czech fans coming up to me. Well, apparently... They've deserted us. And so you know how we occasionally do this thing where we have Tony and Bonnie issue a uh, an oral report on a country to um, to thank them for being our listeners? Yes, so that we can understand them better, so we can appeal to them more. Well, tonight we're doing that a little differently. What we're going to do is we're going to try to understand them better so that we can win their love back. And with that in oh. mind, it's time for Tony Anita Hull and Bonnie Burns to step up to the mic and issue their report on the Czech Republic. Woo! Okay. Woo! I was, uh, I was Bonnie, both expecting start? and dreading a theme song right there, and it, it just never materialized. God damn well, it, Bonnie. You, you gave a theme song to one of my jokes earlier. I know. Well, uh, I didn't have a chance to do a theme song for this. In fact... I wasn't really concentrating on what you just said because I was trying to find my notes and I think I left them in my locker. Bonnie! I, no, I, think, <laughs> I, I think everyone likes to hear that you weren't really concentrating on what they were saying. I think that... Yeah. <laughs> Especially the woman you manage. Yeah, I think, I think Neil Katyal himself will tell you that uh, some of the words that... Stick with him the 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 the, the best uh, are when he's made an argument and he's interrupted by a Supreme Court justice to say, you know, I wasn't really concentrating on what you were saying. Uh, no, can you say that again? Yeah, that that flatters any speaker. No, um, I was <laughs> a little panicked because I remembered writing some notes down and then I can't find them and. So do you did not Adam have any say, notes for your report? No, I do. I do. I do. But did Adam say the part about how we came up with the idea that we do a group report because it was such a pain? Did you tell that part? <laughs> no, he didn't no. mention that. No, oh, okay. I don't think we need to go so, back into ancient history. That was the idea behind this. Like you do a group report and one of the people does all the work and the other person kind of bluffs their way through it. And so, uh -huh. are you are you saying that your person B in the in this <laughs> in today's performance? No. And Paula said no. You do a group report, and that's you know like when you do it in school, that's one of the things that teaches you to work with people. And I said no. I think it was always a pain in the ass. You could have done a better job by yourself. However, Tony and I have always enjoyed doing this together. What I think... I Until just, now! I can't find where some of the good stuff is that I wrote down. But what I do think is that Tony and I should take turns on our facts instead of each one of us doing a section. So I'll go first with a fact, and then she can do a fact, and then I'll do a fact. I thought you just said you didn't you have your stuff. You said you don't have any facts. I can't find the in, one that I meant to say, but I have plenty of other ones. I am prepared. In today's so presentation, Bonnie Burns will be playing the role of the slacker student. <laughs> no, Bonnie, Bonnie you're wasting fact. the court's time here. No, okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. Let's see. I'll just pick one out. Okay. Here, just off the top of my, right here in a note. The population of the Czech Republic is 10.65 million, which is about the size of the state of Georgia, 10.62 million. Just, I wanted to give you a chance to visualize what the size of the country was. So you know as we're talking about it, that's one of my visualization points. 
Okay, but that doesn't tell you the size of the country. That tells you the population. Okay, but you're getting an idea of how many people we're talking about. Yes, that's population. That's not the size of the country. You are sounding like someone who forgot her notes. No, I have notes. Over to you, Tony, for a fact. Bonnie, do you need... Do you need to call your parents and have no, your, I have your information? Well, we all have that information. Any one of us could Google the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic is Googleable, Bonnie. <laughs> they speak Czech in the Republic of Czechoslovakia, and the currency is known as the Corona. My Corona. My Corona. I thought I was coming up with really clever stuff. Here's one more thing, okay? It's a the very population. You thought the population was really clever stuff. I thought it was well, you, a way for you, you to visualize the country. And like you went ahead and called them the there. Republic of Czechoslovakia, which they are not. It's the what Czech Republic. Yes, but you called them the Republic of Czechoslovakia, but seconds ago. Oh, okay. Be a little nitpicky. It's not it's really nitpicky to the Czechs. <laughs> this is why they hate us. It's not nitpicky. Okay, There's Slovakia and the Czech Republic now. They broke <laughs> up. It's very affordable to live there. Oh, so, oh good. The average income uh, in Czechoslovakia is... Um, <laughs> wow. Oh, Are you just is. scanning no, the Wikipedia page the right average, now? The oh average salary in Czechoslovakia is $37,000 a year. Oh, <laughs> it's, not it's not Czechoslovakia! It's not Czechoslovakia! That's Czechoslovakia dissolved years ago. No, Bonnie, Bonnie, year, listen to and me. And the average salary in Bonnie, the United States to, you, is $31,000 a year. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. Bonnie, you have to listen to me. You have to listen to me because Czechoslovakia was a country uh, a couple of decades ago, and they broke up. They broke up. They're now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and every time you call them Czechoslovakia, you're showing them that we don't know shit about them or care. Think of it as the Beatles, okay? So now there's Paul McCartney and Wings, and then two of them are dead. Do you see? They broke up. All right. Over Nicely, to done. She- Nicely done, Paula. Oh, oh my <laughs> Lord. Yes, please, Tony, dig us out of here if there's any Czech. Tell still us another way, to Tony, us. that the Czech Republic is exactly like Georgia. <laughs> well, I don't think they're exactly like Georgia. Probably the polar opposite of Georgia in this way. So the Czech Republic ranks as one of the least religious populations in the world. Only 19% of them claim to believe in God. Oh, my gosh. I want to go there. <laughs> I, oh, I love you that should. about them. You should. Oh, my gosh. So. Yeah, that's great. So they just depend on themselves. So when they have a terrible disaster of some sort or they don't send thoughts and prayers... No, no. in fact, a Czech woman wrote a big bestseller a few years ago um, about her search for meaning. It's called Get Love. It's also, it's also the sixth safest place on Earth to live, according to the... Wow, oh my gosh. Index. 
what am I doing here? You know, I can podcast from the Czech Republic. Yeah, but nobody there will listen to you. Well, nobody listens to Paula Poundstone anyway. But I think the very fact of me being there might put us back at number 101 uh, as, a, as a comedy <laughs> podcast in the Czech Republic. All right. So far, I'm loving it there. No, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Back to you, Bonnie. All right. Uh, <laughs> because it's the size of Georgia. Why, Bonnie? Okay. Let's hear it. I thought you might be interested in... Uh, their popular music there. So Kyle is going to play us a sample of one of their rock and roll stars. And I have to say that in listening to his music, I'm a fan. I'm going to start listening to this guy's music. Unfortunately, I can't pronounce. I can't pronounce his name. That's who's this guy. It's something. REM. It's REM. No, it's it's just like like Georgia. It's like Maroc Karazanikanaka. Oh, you're kidding me. Maracarazza Nikanaka? I love them. Oh, my gosh. This is so exciting. I didn't think anybody else knew about Maracarazza Nikanaka. No, here's a, his name is Marek Citrasini. Well, what Here happened to Nikanaka? Well, I had that wrong. That was the summer camp you went to. I, I want to say, if you're a Czech person listening right now... Just as a token of how much we care about you, Bonnie Burns didn't take a fucking second to learn how to how to pronounce the name of the rock star we're about to listen to. Maracanaka Nikanaka. That okay. sounds right. <laughs> okay, Kyle is gonna play it. Honestly, oh, this guy's really great. Take a listen. Od pondělí až do pátku, když ti něco tvrdí do očí, a za zády vše otočí. Když peněz není dostatek, a v hlavě máš jenom zmatek, od rána do noci tě šéf prudí, a v práci tě to už jen nudí. It's a little hard when you don't know what the words mean. I think it means, I think... The first phrase, which is something like Ikanaka Nuki, um, means um, I really love the Joe Rogan podcast. I think that's what that Yeah, I think first, that's, that's what it roughly translates Nuki. to. Yeah, yeah. Ikanaka Nuki. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm are, disappointed. We are that, sinking even lower yeah. on the charts as we speak. No, we're not. What, are you kidding me? The very fact that we relate so much to the pop music culture and that they're exactly like Georgia. Uh. Tony, what else do you have for us? Bail us out, Tony. So I would like to amend position 101 that was in Panama. Our peak position in the Czech Republic was position number two on the comedy podcast. Oh, wow. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. We were 101 with a rocket. We went to number two. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he could not know. They're he fickle. And then we fell off. What the <laughs> hell happened to them? They are fickle. The, sh- the Czechs are fickle, fickle people. Yeah, that's what that song meant. We used to like Paula Poundstone, and now we just like <laughs> Joe Rogan. He could not know. He could not know. Oh, damn it. 
<laughs> Joe wow. Rogan's number 54 on their charts. Oh. He beat Joe Rogan. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that he always was. He's he's facing the Czech Republic fickle gene right now, the same as we did. Yeah, now we like, I forget who the other guy is. America Nickanucka. No, uh, Dax <laughs> Shepard. Now we like Dax Shepard. Oh. Ikanekanuka. He's on Ikanekanuka. the chart. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tony, what else yeah. you got? <laughs> yeah. So their their literacy rate is 99%. Oh, my gosh. I don't deserve to live there. This sounds like paradise. I'll bet they I'll bet they knew about sucker a long time ago. Like they didn't even need to listen to the vocabulary song to know sucker. I'll bet you they already knew that it's a noun that means help given to someone who is suffering or in difficulty. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Um, All right. Is what, there anything what, is there anything else that you guys Tony, can bring to the table? I'm a little appalled at both of you. Tony, oh, no. Tony and Bonnie. What I have more stuff. How culturally could we appeal to them, do you think, to move back up? Because um, we would really like to be in, reinstated on the comedy list to number two again. Czech people do love beef. What is oh, I this? I can't help with that. <laughs> I don't know if that helps. Uh, yeah, I can't help with that at all. I think that's a bad idea, Czech people. Well, um, I like beef, but guys, come on, break break out some of the big guns. <laughs> okay, they do like beef, and one of their favorite foods is a thing called um, pork knuckle bone. It's a big old hunk of pork knee, and it's marinated <laughs> in beer and served with pickled vegetables. Pork knuckle Pork knuckle marinated in beer. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that's good to know. It's big. It's a big old hunk of knee. It's knee? Pork knee? Yeah, it's a pork knuckle is a knee. That's ridiculous. A knuckle <laughs> isn't a knee? Well, that's pigs don't have is. fingers. No, uh, all right, so, uh, well, that's good to know because I was just... Um, just uh, check, check people. I was just enjoying a little bit of pork knuckle <laughs> marinated in beer. Let, let, let me just ask you: Do any okay, of you wait. guys? Do you guys have anything about the Prague no. Spring of 1968? Kind of a big no, deal. But I do have, when they I have when really they staged the revolution against the Russians, and then the Russians. You know, we're going to let them liberate, but then they didn't, and it was known as the Prague Spring. It was a beautiful spring of liberation in 1968, just when the hippie movement was at its fullest here in America. How about playwright Václav Havel, a surrealist playwright who was very popular before the fall of the Iron Curtain, and once the Czech Republic got their independence, he actually, this playwright, became president of the Czech Republic for many years. Okay, hey, Adam? that's interesting. Hey, Adam. Yes, it is. This should be in your report. Adam. Yes. Yes, Adam? Paula. Yes. That's really great, but would you like a bite of this pork knuckle marinated in beer? I don't want beer pork knuckle. No. How about pork knee? Would you like okay. some pork knee? One of those, maybe. Okay. Yeah, have I'm a done. little pork knee. It's marinated in beer. Here's the thing. What yeah. we haven't talked about, Adam alluded to a little bit, because Kafka... 
lived in Prague for a couple of years while he was writing. I didn't know that. No, he did. And Prague has the oldest astronomical clock there. It's 600 years old, and uh, people come from all around the world to hear it go off on the hour. And you know how it has, like, the little doors at the top that open, and then, like, little figurines come out and go around and like there's little gold figures on the outside that tap like bells it's it's really beautiful and then they it's have, like small world honestly it's it, like small it world is. It is. you don't need to it's, go there it's like it, small it's, world you know what you know what would suck is going all the way to prague and getting there at a quarter till yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah that'd and be then, terrible um, they have a building called the, um, oh shoot. It was designed by, uh, boy, this information has, <laughs> this information has really just become part of your DNA. Uh, the way you're rolling this stuff off, you know. Okay, but wait. No, you have okay. prepared. No. Uh, 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 Neil, Neil Katyal knows nothing about preparation as compared to you. No, you're it's ready facts. to take your report. I, okay, to I'm the ready Supreme with Court. these two. I'm ready with these two, and this was really interesting. Okay, they okay. have this infant Jesus. It's called the Infant Jesus of Prague, and it's a Roman Catholic statue of Jesus Christ as an infant. Well, I thought what was really interesting. I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe like a little tiny baby crucified on the cross but it's like a little tiny doll looking thing that's in an ornate robe with a little crown on its head yeah this wasn't the baby was not was crucified baby. <laughs> yeah that's why would yeah. you be expecting that you sicko jesus wasn't crucified well, as a what baby would you think it was you're confusing your nativity uh <laughs> with with the crucifixion. Yeah, the two, it was separate. Congratulations, events. Mary, it's a boy. Nail him up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, but hell? it's not like in a crib or anything. It's like standing upright. It looks like a little baby doll with a whole ornate robe, like with a furry collar, and then like a big crown on its head. Was and it like a terry a cloth robe? Was it just, it had just gotten <laughs> up in the morning and it's scuffed in with its f- slippers? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. It's it's known as Saturday Morning Jesus. Um, it had just gone down to watch cartoons when it got sculpted. <laughs> hey, uh, Tony Anita Hall, can you uh, bail wait. this report out at all, or no, is this wait. that? No, I have one more. This is really interesting. Why? It's Adam. not your turn. No, okay. this is one more. This is good. They have the Jewish okay. quarter there in Prague. In old the town. The Jewish what? Prague. The quarter. Jewish quarter where the... Jews living in Prague way back in the 13th century when they were ordered to vacate their homes, they had to settle oh, no. in that one area. Uh-huh. And you can see all the, like, old, uh, a lot of those old buildings are still left there. Wow. Well, that's a, huh? that's a, that's a glorious piece of historical anti-Semitism that I'm sure our Czech <laughs> friends would love to be reminded of. Yeah. Has, has everybody lost their minds? <laughs> Tony, anything? <laughs> I've already, I've moved on Bonnie, to ordering it, dinner at this point, but instead. Bonnie, is your topographical map? <laughs> is your flower and water topographical map still drying? 
<laughs> well, I brought music. I brought music, and he's really good. Oh, you mean um, Mocha Rocket Teeny Weenie is fantastic. <laughs> All right, and that is uh, that is the end of of our checklistership. I can't imagine the end of why this we're report. not still number two there. I just don't get it. <laughs> well, uh, Tony and Bonnie, uh, thank you so much for uh, making sure that that. Um, well, maybe we have a chance in Slovakia. That's all I can say. <laughs> Follow. Oh, what, what's going on with the Poundstone product empire this week? Adam, the success of Poundstone Industries, also known as Lipstick Nancy Incorporated. Um, well, first of all, we're just about to open a branch office in the Czech Republic. Um, <laughs> our, our success is entirely due to our wonderful staff who are treated with respect and kindness from day one. That's why you don't mesh, Mayo. Because deep down inside you eyeball me. Deep down inside. You know that all these other boys and girls are better than you are. Isn't that right, Mayo? Huh? Isn't that right? No, sir! No, sir! The sweatshop uh, workshop makes handcrafted poundstone pussy pillows, four and a half inch by five inch catnip filled pillows. Each one has a grommet on the top to attach a string, plus a catch oak on one side, and on the other side, I will happily autograph it to your little furball. Poundstone Pussy Pillows satisfy the dissatisfied cat. They're available at the store at my website at paulapoundstone.com. Kirkus Reviews, by the way, says my book, The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness, is a pure romp, a deeply revealing memoir in which the pathos doesn't kill the humor, delivers more than it promises. That's The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. If your bookstore doesn't have it, you can get it at the store at paulapoundstone.com. Lot of stuff available there. You can even find tickets to my shows. In Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Civic Center on Thursday, September 23rd. Or tickets to the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas on Thursday, September 30th. Or tickets to the Athenaeum Theater in Chicago on Saturday, October 2nd. Uh, That is one big plug-a-rama. There's more, of course, but Heidi... Yes, Heidi. And I want to remind everybody, you can still pre-order my book forthcoming on November 16th, um, Confessions of a Puppet Master with uh, Charles Band with Adam Felber. That book is fantastic. It's rocketing up the charts, unlike us in the Czech Republic. And also, how's it doing in the Czech Republic? Yeah, pretty well. Um, If you're uh, interested in those Poundstone Pussy Pillows, I want to remind you that Paula doesn't tie a string to the grommet attached to the pillow. Um, But I am willing to... um, transform them by signing them and tying a string to the grommet and that offensively named poundstone pussy pillow will become a felber feline fun bag which is a much more palatable thing and the reason i bring that up is because paula you and i had an order of about a dozen of those for somebody the other day and did you turn them into uh, feline (laughs) i tied the i tied the strings and signed them and transformed them into felber feline fun bags wow all right. Yeah. All right, boy. Our financial stars are way up in the sky. 
Oh yeah, we are we're we're selling worm shit hand over fist here. Hey, subscribe to this podcast. It's free. You'll get it every week at no charge. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to know about, tell us. We're at nobody listens to Paula Poundstone at gmail.com and that, my friends, is our show. Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone is hosted by Paula Poundstone and yours truly, Adam Leigh Felber. Special thanks to our guest, Neil Cat, y'all, everybody, y'all. Thanks to our house band, Michael Kelly. Yay! Our show is produced by Paula Poundstone, Adam Felber, Bonnie Burns, Ken Lizebnik, and Tony Anita Hall. Starburns production by Land Romo and Kyle McGraw. Transcription Yay! services for the show provided by TranscribeMe, a premier internationally used transcription service. Use code Paula Poundstone when placing your order at transcribeme.com to receive an expedited service. That's our show for tonight. Won't somebody please listen to me, Czech Republic? <laughs> I think I think we're really in there now. I, I feel there's like no way. Kind of blew that. No, I don't. Oh, what are you crazy? I we're, I think we are. Um, no, we're in their hearts now. Bonnie called than, them Czechoslovakia twice. She couldn't pronounce their singer's <laughs> name. Yeah, but that's not what's important. It's it's what's important. It's some it's. No, we have a connection. We, we, we have a connection. Yeah, apparently they're just like Georgia. Just like Georgia. <laughs> they're nothing at all like that. I mean, they're not even close to Georgia. Their climate is different. They're... Yeah. Bonnie said, Bonnie said that, that, you know, she gave us the image of Georgia in our heads so that we could uh, picture Germany, uh, yeah. the, the Czech Republic. It's, uh, it's like Georgia, but the Jesus yeah. statue... He's wearing like a little haircloth curl, um, some slippers with ducks. I think there's ducks, on, like duck heads. Ba- on baby Jesus and duck head slippers, yeah. yeah. You know, there's a yeah. replica of that in Atlanta in the neighborhood of Little Prague. Oh, yeah, it's reckless. You know what? There's a door you can open in Atlanta, and you walk right straight through into Prague. That's how... Cleaved together these two places. It's just like Georgia. All right, Czech Republic, <laughs> you're welcome. Star Avenue, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.